Hello everyone, my name is Kanai Kapadia. I'm the President and Chief Analyst of KGK and Company. KGK is a strategic management consultancy that helps middle market companies align with their best growth opportunities, overcome their more challenging operational frustrations, and ultimately to grow their earnings. If you're intrigued by the idea of a firm that wants to be a profit center rather than a cost center for your business, use the link in the show notes to connect with me. On this episode of Hindsight, I'll be speaking with Mike Briggs. Mike has a 35-year career spanning a number of leadership roles, including president at OEI Business Forms. That was back when digital forms didn't exist. Then at Bradford Manufacturing, and most recently at Morco, both of which are family-owned businesses in the furniture industry. He is now president and CEO of Little Friend, a nonprofit that empowers clients with autism and other developmental disabilities, as well as the families that they're a part of to thrive. Mike, thank you for joining me on, on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for asking. Of course. You've got a depth of experience leading different organizations. So why don't we begin by, by talking about OEI business forms? So the year was 1984. Can you tell us a little bit of the story of how you came into that, that leadership role there? Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I uh, um, had been working at uh, IBM in the data processing division. And my stepfather had a printing company called OEI that he had come out of retirement to come back in and operate the business. Um, and he came down to recruit me to say if, if I had a, uh, showed an aptitude to be able to, to understand and run the business that within a three-year period, he wanted to give me the opportunity to run it. And as a 28-year-old kid with high aspirations, I thought that that would be a really cool thing to do. Plus, my wife and I had aspirations to want to move back to Chicago, and we're currently at the time we're living in central Illinois. So it was a, it was a fit for that as well. What wasn't the plan, though, was that within 90 days, <laughs> I went from being in a position to learn the business to all of a sudden... Um, I'm responsible for running the uh, day-to-day side of the business. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it was one of those situations that you find yourself in where, you know, it's a it's a trial by fire. Begin to learn things about not only what's going on in the business, but then how do you, how do you grow it and what do you do? And the only background I had, which thank God I had some incredible training from IBM, was to follow the model that they had taught me and how I'd been managed in terms of how to how to sell computer technology. So we we kind of just followed that model and did our own assessments and did our strategy plans and all those kinds of things, looked at what we were good at, what we needed to improve, and began to build the business uh, that included really rebuilding and growing uh, a sales force because uh, we felt as um, that was really from a distribution standpoint, selling directly and using a sales team that was trained to sell our products, we felt was critical. And back then, in the 1980s, that was a that was a way that worked. The internet mm-hmm. wasn't anything that was a was a possibility. And so we we began and developed a just an incredibly powerful sales force, and then uh, added additional products as things went on. At the company at the time really spent a lot of time selling commodity products and in particular continuous pin feed paper and tab cards. And if you think about that, think about how long ago that was, that was the bread and butter of the organization and and really began to change and, and pivot away from those products into more customized products that leveraged some of the new technologies that were coming into the marketplace. It was a, a family business was a, a fun time. We grew the business, but as uh, as I learned very 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 humbly, you know, you get into family arguments sometimes, and in family business, if you're not the majority shareholder, you need to be you need to be careful about what you say. <laughs> so that was a great lesson there, a humbling one. But uh, I will tell you that uh, we grew a business from 40 million to over 111 million over a nine year period. 
and um, and did it in a way where um, the company was making money and, and did well. So that was a was an incredible experience. And at 28 years old, to start that, it really was the springboard for everything else that that has kind of been fortunate enough to happen over time for me. You mentioned coming into the role of having to to lead the business after 90 days. And it sounds like that wasn't the plan. Was that a personal event that precipitated that or was No, that, no, it wasn't the plan. That good? <laughs> no, 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 you know it's actually it's kind of a fun story. Um the person that really was running the day-to-day operations chose to demote himself and and step down and take a different position. And uh when that happened, uh, my stepfather and I were in a were in his office, and he said, "I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have anybody to run the business." And um, I I looked at him and I said, "Well, I can do it." And um, he said, "Are you sure?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "I could do it." I mean, I, I I felt as though he goes, "Well, what? How would you do it?" I said, "Well, I'd run it just the same way that I ran, uh, or I I was responsible for the things and that, that I did at IBM." And uh, and he was an ex-IBMer as well, which is how the company got started, getting into the supplies business. And uh, and he said, okay. He said, you really think you can do it? He said, I'm going to give you the chance. And that was kind of how it happened. It was not a plan. Um, it was just, you know, being, um, I, I, I guess, confident. But in all honesty, I think if anybody at that age who steps into that kind of a situation responsible for 300 employees and, you know, thousands of customers and, you know, $40 million in revenue. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think about those things. And and I guess maybe the one good thing was because of the fact that back then the computers that were sold by IBM were pretty expensive. So big numbers didn't scare me because I was used to that. Um, but the mm-hmm. truth is, um, the, the truth is uh, I was naive as all get out. And, um, uh, but yet, confident enough that I thought I could do it. So I knew how to compete. I knew how to sell and in, and I learned how to manage. And, uh, and it was one of those things that over time became an incredible opportunity that was, was fun, challenging, all the things that you would hope you'd get to go through in your career. I certainly got a, certainly got a baptism of that right away. Yeah. What did your team look like when you, when you came into that role, your direct reports, if you will? Oh, it's interesting. Some of the team had been there a long time. And mm-hmm. so, so, you know, that was an interesting dynamic by itself because I became responsible for a number of individuals that were probably twice my age. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you think about the dynamic of, you know, accepting guidance and responsibility from somebody who's brand new, who's never been in the job, and they're half the age of an elder who's been there for a long time. It's, a, you know, you've got you've to prove yourself. And and I didn't ask for anything from that standpoint, you know. I, I uh, the, the lessons that, that were provided to me from the experience at IBM was a wonderful foundation, and it was it just became the way that I tried to to do the things that I thought were necessary to be able to operate the business. So I, you know, the, the communication model, the the meeting model, the all of those things were were there. Um, but I would tell you, you know, you had your standard manufacturing. We had manufacturing sales. I had been in the marketing position, had to replace it. Finance, human resources, uh, administration. I'm trying to think what else I might be missing. But I mean, it was the full full gamut. Um, IT. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest learning curve for you coming into that role? And I imagine they were all tough. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question in terms of, you know, I think probably... Um, understanding the manufacturing process and it wasn't overly complicated but yet at the same time it was all brand new and so being able to mm-hmm. being able to get involved and understand that and 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 actually know what drove the business mm-hmm. so from that perspective that was to me that was a that was one of those things that um it it hadn't come natural in the beginning so i had to spend some time doing that the customer side and the sales side was not it was not as challenging because it wasn't as um of a surprise it's stuff that i had done at ibm mm-hmm. but but i would say the manufacturing was probably the bigger part and the harder part to 
learn. So when you finished at OEI Business Forms, uh, your next role was as president at Gretford Manufacturing. Yes. Was was your experience at OEI uh, a direct translation into the the demands of your next role? How did you start at Gretford? I started uh, the the title that I had was uh, managing managing director and chief operating officer, and I reported mm-hmm. to two brothers who had made the decision that. They wanted to to bring in a chief operating officer to run the day-to-day operation of the business. The experience, I would say that there were two things. One was the experience in a, in a privately held business and understanding the dynamics of that was something that I think was appealing to the to the guys when they when they asked me to join the company. the The areas of responsibility were um, all the all very similar. But um, I would say what was different, without question, were two things. One was product development, and the other was um, manufacturing, again. And it was more complicated on both ends. Simply by virtue of size? Uh, By size, the number of SKUs, the products. The printing business was predominantly uh, converting paper and putting ink and drying it and getting it into a box and then distribution. Manufacturing with metal and wood, and you know, doing things that involve tooling, and and doing things, that, making products that are ready to assemble, that have to go into packaging properly, and uh, being done right, is is a heck of a lot more complicated. So again, there was another level of complication to learn and grow upon. So it was I mean, it was an incredible experience, and certainly again, as as the company as the company. Uh, was when I got there, it spent a lot of time and energy and, and product development on products that were made for the old large box televisions, whether they were mobile carts or mounts that went on the wall or things like that. A lot of the, a lot of the products were um, revolved around that technology. And when that technology changed, it kind of drove the business to a whole new direction in terms of what did it need to do to reinvent itself? Because all those products were going by the wayside quickly, and um, it, mm-hmm. it became a very interesting, very interesting challenge from understanding the markets, understanding distribution, and then making sure, from a design standpoint, depending upon what we tried to what we tried to make, making sure we had good product design as well. Mm-hmm. How how quickly did you have to make that shift? It it started as an opportunity, and then accelerated as the technology changed. Would be the way I would say it is. is 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 I look back on things. We would go to we were we were um, constant attendees at trade shows, of which mm-hmm. we provided at the time. The company provided a a set of products that provided support for the technology that was used in both business and in education. And as that technology changed, it accelerated the product design that went on, the product design efforts, and the results that went on to be able to continue to provide current things for those new technologies that were finding their way for for especially audio visual products and um as those changed and you could see that that the old stuff was quickly dying on a vine it caused a, an acceleration for the organization in terms of um pushing to get more and more new items that supported the new technology into the marketplace did it become a challenge to figure out you know what do you obsolete versus keep what do you add? How do you manage the overall portfolio? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually it's um, you know how long do you stay in something? Do you have do you have distribution? Can you continue to manufacture it in a way where um, you can minimize your your operating and setup costs? You know, because if you're you know if you're used to making let's say a thousand units a week and all of a sudden it drops to a hundred, you know, how often do you make them? And and you know mm-hmm. the other side of it is. Then you have a question of you know you're now you're managing the 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 inventory the asset side of it in terms of you know what are your turns going to be and how do you you know how do you and you turn your product quickly and that was one of the things that the company had had made a strong commitment to was to to make sure that assets were being deployed properly and that there was a a good turn on inventory in terms of what was going on but um the the biggest issue is that 
you know, you once you get into a point where you see the product dying, but there are still some people that are continuing to buy it, that, you know, the phrase that, that I'd always heard used was, you know, how long does it take to harvest that? So you try to basically maximize the the sales dollars for the products that you're going to make that, that are near the end of their life cycle without having to put additional money into any kind of development or tooling or things like that. And basically you keep making it until it's no longer viable. You know, if, if somebody suggests, for example, that, you know, you make a bunch of changes to an old product, if it doesn't create a new market, then maybe it's time for the, the product to go away. And and you kind of face those decisions, some by product line, some by product itself, depending upon what support the and what value the, the proposition was for the product that, that was being produced. So, you know, with, with a, with a faster, ever faster changing market with technology being that, you know, the, the point of change and um, internal need for efficiency and just portfolio management. Can, can you maybe contextualize for us, you know, what were the key success factors for the business as you viewed them on a, on an ongoing basis, things to make sure are firing in all, all, all cylinders. You know, I'll kind of click through my head, all the different functional areas, mm-hmm. you know, the, I, to me, I think product design is, is absolutely so crucial to the success of a, of a company, especially if they manufacture their own products it, it, and, and they're providing their own, you know, sales and distribution, you know, are you, are you solving a problem and do you, are you in tune with that? And are you in tune with the new technologies? And especially if it's a, something for support standpoint, so is product design in, in, in place from a manufacturing, could you manufacturing with consistency and at low cost? And so had you invested in proper tooling? Um, did you have the right equipment to be able to be efficient? Uh, and were you able to implement things, especially back then lean manufacturing, which is still is very important, but lean manufacturing was critical to being able to pull waste out of your processes so that you could compete with the likes of companies that were bringing product over from overseas. And, you mm-hmm. know, and so could you keep your labor, labor costs down to a point where you could, with lower labor, you could offset what their extra freight costs might be in bringing product over from China and be competitive. That was the, that was kind of the general strategy years ago. So from that would be from a manufacturing standpoint. On the on the selling side and the marketing side, had you properly um, put in place what the value proposition was, and had were you able to tell that story where people were comfortable and understood the the the, the proposition, and did you have a sales team that was well trained and could articulate that, and not only identify opportunities but close on that business? In customer service, you had to have people that were properly trained and knew how to support what was going on. And, and you know, that can be a, a place where you fall down if you don't have that element taken care of. Where would you be from a finance side if you don't have good understanding of your costs and you don't have good product costs, you can't produce and, and make money. You've got to know what your costs are. You've got to know not only itemized on material and labor, but also your overhead. No, you've got to have solid understanding of what those factors are so that you can properly price the product in the marketplace. I could probably go on, um, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of different things, but you know, as you look at those, you know, each, each functional area with, of, within an organization pay, plays a critical part in supporting a, a product or a product line or, or a, an initiative along those things. And each one has to, each one has to perform in order for the organization to be able to capitalize on the opportunities and maximize its earnings potential. If yeah. you if you fall down or you don't cover those bases or you do some of those things half-hearted or you haven't thought through the details as to what you do need to do to do it right, what ends up happening is you you stumble or you you have some problems getting out of the gate and creates bad customer experiences and then all of a sudden you're fighting you're fighting something that if you just did it right, you wouldn't have to. You wouldn't have those challenges. So um, hopefully that hopefully that makes uh, makes a little bit of yeah, sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, it it makes sense. 
I'm curious, you know, you talk about these functions working together and, and um, some of the, the problems they can cause, the dysfunction it can cause when they don't necessarily, or you, you have a, a blind spot in one, one capability area. What are some of the more challenging situations that emerge, whether it's product launch or that sort of thing, um, efficiency even? You know, it's 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 interesting as you as you look when you when you bring, especially if it's a new product, um, and you're bringing it to market. Oftentimes, you kind of begin to you begin to pre-sell what you're bringing to market with the idea that you're trying to build some sort of um, market demand for what you're gonna what you're gonna bring. Um, mm-hmm. but the, the the challenge is is making sure you don't overcommit, especially when it comes to being able to produce product, especially anything brand new. Almost always, my experience was there was always a uh, uh, an issue with regard to, uh, there was almost always an issue with regard to tooling. It always took longer than when you expected, and, or you would run into an issue where the, the product that was being made wasn't exactly as to what it was supposed to be. And you know that became uh, a challenge and a correction, which created a delay, and um, and so that's the you know that was the thing that you know you'd get all you'd get everybody all excited about the product and then you couldn't deliver, and that creates sometimes as much ill will as you know a, a bad product experience because something didn't work when it came out of the box. Just somebody having those yeah. expectations was something that you really had to try to temper and uh, and control. So you didn't over yeah. overcommit to start. Would you categorize these as you know the the innovation process, if you will, or or even product development as a whole? You know, it is. I would. It's part of the innovation process, but it's also it's a management discipline. I mean, I think okay. that if there was one thing that 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 I took away from the experience was that um, you really had to be disciplined as to what you could commit to, and you needed to make sure you didn't overcommit. And got pressure from all angles, all sides, you know, saying, come on, yeah. we got to get this done. We got to get ready. And, you, and you'd even push yourself. But yet at the same time, you couldn't push and then create a, a situation where the, the risks were high and the rewards were going to be low because of the fact that you didn't have everything completely done. Whereas you, if you had two more weeks, you wouldn't be in that position maybe that would switch where the rewards would be high and the risks would be low. And sometimes those two weeks are painful, but in the longer in longer perspective, longer term perspective, it's not that big a deal. It's just the short term where you get pressure, stuff like that. Yeah. Was that, you know, was that two weeks? I presume we're talking about a specific yeah. example in the back yeah, just, of just as, it was It was just what came to mind as a time. It sometimes could be two months. Um, it's, yeah. it's just... The pressure to, to, especially if you're customer driven, which I think most every business, if you're surviving today, you are. If you're not customer focused, yeah. you know, I don't think you're around. Um, so you're trying yeah. to satisfy a need. And if you've got a new product that satisfies a need and they want it now, not, you know, and, and, and they need it now, you know, you, you feel bad when you can't meet that customer's requirements. And, and that's yeah. where the emotional side comes in. And it's just a it's just a discipline that that um, sometimes is uncomfortable and unpopular, but it's what you got to do. Just so just so we're clear, are we talking about an end customer who's getting the product? Or are we talking about the distribution channel or most both? of the time? The end customer is the real driver, and and it would be yet yeah, someone who wanted it and it was going to solve a problem for them, and and it was a product they wanted. You know, it was always a it was always a, a bad feeling when you couldn't quite get that at that point in time, especially if you were getting tooling fixed or you know near the near the beginning of the launch, but just not quite ready. There's just it's just yeah. a, just one of those things that happens, and and I I see it I see it happen all the time with stuff that people that launch new things. That's a story that keeps replaying over and over. Yeah. No. Exactly. What did you change that fixed it? Oh, I realize I it's not an endpoint, but no. Well, we, you know, I, there was there was a time when just said, "Hey, no, we're not gonna, we're just not gonna do this." And um, and then um, 
you know, and then that became the way. And then all of a sudden, some really important customer came up and they said, boy, we've got to have this now and we'll give you X amount of units, but you've got to deliver. And then all of a sudden you go, okay, is it worth the opportunity? Is it worth the risk? Do you go for it? You know, the, the entrepreneur part of you comes in and then you say, okay, should I, should I do it? And then you violate your own, your own management disciplines and you, you potentially create a problem for yourself because you didn't follow what you knew you were supposed to do. You st- you started thinking from an emotional standpoint rather than, you know, using the facts that you'd use to make the decision to begin with. And um, if you mess up once or twice in, in those situations, and anytime you get in product development and, and getting stuff launched, I don't think there's anybody that can say that they've never missed a date or, you know, didn't try to accelerate something like that. I would just tell you that if you get burned because you don't deliver and you lose out on something, that happens once or twice, and pretty soon you just say, you know, it's just not worth it. Not going to do it. And you have yeah. to you have to experience it to be in the position to to be strong enough to, my opinion, to be strong enough to say, nope, not going to change. Yeah. How how big was Bradford at? At the point where we're generally talking about it, but and it was uh, it, um, as a, as a comp- yeah, it was um, uh, it's uh, when I got there, um, its revenues were its revenues were just over forty million dollars, and when I left, the, the uh, revenues exceeded a hundred million. Yeah, sounds like the same the same uh, story. Yeah, it's very yeah, yeah. So it's very it's very similar from that standpoint. The size. And I can't, yeah. uh, you know, OEI is no longer in business and uh, I can't speak to, it's been 10 years since I was at Bretford. So I I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah, sure. You know, as I look back on it, there were a lot of very good things and uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. What would you have perhaps done a little bit differently if you did it over again, at, uh, whether it's OEI or Bretford? Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. You know, I, I, I have a, uh, as I look back on OEI, we could have spent more time on product development and probably should have spent more time on new products and product development. Um, I would say that that would have been beneficial. Mm -hmm. You know, as I look at, as I look back at, at, uh, at, at Bretford, we, we, we did a lot of things right. And, and the company was very successful for, for the years when I was there and, and had some really good um, business. Um, could, could the company have gotten into other markets? Maybe, I guess, is, would be the one thing that, that maybe that, as I think about, could we have expanded more? But, you know, you got to have the resources to be able to do that. And you got to have infrastructure behind it to make that happen. And I'm not so sure that that would have been, that would have been doable. I, I think we did pretty well yeah. with what we had. Yeah. You know, um, I remember from my semiconductor days that the curve of both revenue and profit for a new product was significantly different based on the time to market. Was that also a significant consideration given the the speed of development among absolutely your competitors? Yeah. Oh yeah, if you're, if you're first to market and you establish a base where, where in particular, if you used two-step distribution and you had the first product and you got it into distribution before competition, it gave you a, it gave you a potential whole new season ahead of anybody else. And that was huge. So yeah, there was always, always pressure to, to, to meet those deadlines, deadlines driven by when catalogs would print. That was a long time ago, but big catalogs would print and you needed to have product ready for the catalog. You know, you had to design around when they were going to be doing their evaluations and be able to bring product in so that they knew you could manage that. Now, they were all, for the most part, manageable things, but at the same time, had a, a finite amount of resources that you could you could put into things like tooling and things like that, where you couldn't you couldn't overspend what you had and only you know support one product. You had to spread those monies across different things. So. You had to try to figure out how to make that happen in the time frame that was necessary. Um, yeah, all of those things, all of those things were a part of speed to market, and um, and the position that it put you in if you were the first one that got there. That's actually a really good question because 
Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, an upside customer or a customer that where their financial consequences to a a less than perfect product launch is one thing. Uh, but when you're if you're late to market or second to market, that's a whole different the whole different financial story. It is. You're absolutely right. So, you know, when you when you run a business with a couple hundred people, how how did you keep a pulse on I mean, we're talking pre IT systems and even today companies they have a lot of data. I don't know how much knowledge they really extract from it varies, but how how did you keep a pulse on what was happening on the ground when you have that many folks in the organization? You know, I tried not to have a, an organization where it had bloated middle management, and so mm -hmm. the the for me, I, I liked a kind of a flat a, a flat um, chain of responsibility. And what I would try to do is I would typically meet with each individual that I was each individual that was a direct report twice a month. I'd have an individual meeting with them, and then we would have at least one team meeting that was really a communication meeting that um, that was done to be able to just talk about what was going on, and in particular, the different activities, and, and um, in particular, how it may affect other other functional areas. What I didn't, I can, I can't take um, I can't take credit for this, but at Bradford, one of the uh, gentlemen who had been an owner who I who's Part of his responsibilities, I took over. It implemented some really solid um, change management initiatives that really allowed the company to stay on top of uh, implementing change and create a structure and a process that I followed. I was taught and followed it, and uh, it was a it was a wonderful thing that he had come up with. And so he deserves full credit for it. Um, but I, I will tell you, I I, uh, I became a strong believer in in the the whole formal change management process because it lets you stay on top of those things and keeps your your business in sync and and it lets you make sure that you kind of think through the details so that when you implement change you only implement it one time as opposed to implementing it multiple times because you didn't think through the details as to what you needed to do. Yeah, was continuous improvement? It exists in every organization to a different degree. Yeah, was no. that a big part? It was. It was. It was. Uh, it's actually it was a big part of any any place I've been. Um, I'm just a huge big. Yeah. I'm a big believer in it. Um, a believer in lean uh, in terms of the elimination of waste. I think that all makes a great deal of sense. Yeah, I think is fr from from my vantage point, um, continual improvement and and focusing on that. While it, while it may get a bit frustrating because you're always constantly pushing to get better. It's also the the mindset that you need to make sure you survive in today's world because if you all of a sudden become static and you're comfortable, I think everybody knows that someone's chasing you and uh, you're not going to mm -hmm. be in a position to, to survive if you're not looking to try to keep pushing to get ahead, whether it's minor mm -hmm. incremental gains or something large that you're able to orchestrate. Yeah. Did you see the pace of, you know, I'm I'm calling on Moore's Law now, you know, did you see the pace of innovation accelerate? During your your time there, being having a product line that's adjacent to, high oh tech. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Is that as you look at the products that you support, then then yeah, you kind of have to keep up with those with those devices, and so yeah, you had to you had to change, and so absolutely, pace of change, pace of change became significant, which which drove the costs of investment in design technologies that otherwise had never been used, you know, drove the costs of investments in tooling and things that were done that were different, that, you know, the new ways to make things uh, became more important. Uh, robotic technologies to produce uh, that enabled mm -hmm. consistency was, was a big thing. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, um, that all kind of fell into place in terms of stuff that was taken into consideration. Did it squeeze gross margins or were you able to make it up in terms of efficiency in manufacturing? I think some of it depended upon when you came into market. 
uh, were you first? A lot of times you could set your you could set the bar as to where you were from a margin standpoint. If you were coming in second or third, that also had an effect as to what you were doing and what was going on. The biggest things that you tried to do, at least the, back then, uh, years ago, is that we were very, very conscious of the labor content in a product and tried to, to do everything we could to keep labor content down because that, in, in essence, also affected overhead. And um, mm-hmm. and so if, if we were efficient from a production standpoint and could produce with consistency in, in, the, in the highest quality that was expected, um, you know, that translated into better margins overall. If we were doing stuff, um, it, if, if that translated, um, sorry, I've got people sending me notes. Um, if, uh, yeah, if, if stuff, um, was, um, not done and you ended up having to do it twice, what ended up happening was your, your margin suffered because you, you ended up spending extra spending extra money fixing your problems. And so everything was all about trying to do things right the first time on time and every time. And that kind of became the mantra that we tried to tried to live by. Did, um, did Bradford manufacture in the U S and ultimately stay yeah. in the U S or have to maybe some components now, but you know, I, I can't speak to what they're doing today. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when I was there, when I was there, the, you know, the lion's share, I would say 90, 90 to 95% of everything was produced in the United States. Mike, one of the things that I noticed about each of these businesses that you've had leadership roles in most uh, over the, these past several uh, roles of yours is they all have a family business component. The first one was your stepfather who brought you into the business. The, the second one at Brentford, there were two brothers. Um, and at Morico as well, there was a, a component there. Can you talk a little bit about how you make that work best for the family, how you incorporate them into the management team or just the, the roles that make sense for them? Sure. I, I, it's, it's probably an answer that, that could probably be the full duration of a podcast and then some uh, yeah. when you start taking into account all the things that can influence or affect what makes sense you know if you just look at you just look at um a first let's say it's a first generation business and and for the the person who um founded a first generation business that's currently family oriented with aspirations to want to have his his or her children um be a part of it i mean it's it's like another child and so one of the things that from an observation standpoint that i saw was the whole idea of of making a decision for that individual who was the the founder of the business i mean it's like it's like cutting off a a limb and it's such an emotional uh decision and so uh, for for the majority of the people that are in that in that situation i mean just my observation uh, being on the other side of it was how difficult that decision was and trying and having to work that through. Now there are some people that are just flat out just ready to move on and they're anxious to do that. And there are so many things that need to go in, especially if you're going to leave the business to, you know, second, second or third generation, or maybe even longer, if it's business has been fortunate enough to be around for that long, you know, that takes, that takes some planning. Um, I would tell you that, you know, from things that I saw that really worked that were, I thought were outstanding was, having an outside board of directors that actually provided value and made a difference and that the, mm-hmm. um, and that their, their vote actually wasn't just a rubber stamp, but actually they did something in terms of what, what they were doing. Um, that's huge in terms of getting outside support and counsel because of the challenges that are brought on with that. A lot of times, or I mean, I observed it and I actually participated in, it in some ways where family didn't get along. And when that happens, that can be tough. And um, you know, how do you how do you find a way to navigate those those uh, kind of treacherous landmines? You know, when you're when you're trying to figure out what to do, um, you know, board council can be uh, a, a huge help. Something like that. You know, it's, as as I've looked and watched and seen other businesses go through the same 
situation. The the challenge is making sure that the the right person is going to be the one who's going to be chosen to be the heir apparent. But you know, it's something that I think it's 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 better if they have the chance to um, gain some sort of experiences. And I can say that from personal experience. The first time around, you know, I didn't have the I didn't have the the background, and so. You know, credibility came by, you know, maybe a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work and making some good decisions. But there are, you know, there are opportunities to get people experience and exposure to what's going on in the business. Um, and, and I think that that's a really important thing. Um, I've seen I've seen a lot of sadly, I've seen a lot of businesses and even participating in a couple where the kids wanted or thought they wanted to be in it. But deep down. They certainly love the spoils from the business, but they didn't necessarily want to put in the work that made the company so successful. And and that's a hard that's a hard thing to deal with. And not everybody has that. You know, there's a kind of a an old adage, the first one is that the first generation works their butt off and the second generation gets some of the spoils and you know, and, and still works hard. And then the third generation is so used to that nice lifestyle that they, they don't quite necessarily have the the right same same work ethic, if you will. I'm not making that up, and and but I'm telling you, I know that that stuff happens, and it's a uh, it's it's a real issue to to make sure that the the right work ethic and and commitment to the business is there, because well, that's a that's a problem if it's not. Mm-hmm. This is interesting because you both worked in in other family owned businesses as well as one that was. I realize that he's your stepfather, so I don't know how how precise you want to be about biological affiliation but um you know you have that first person perspective as well and so you know what what advice would you give the other 28 year olds out there who are who are hoping to take over their their family business in with the benefit of hindsight of what it took over that 10 year period to really grow the business gain gain the uh gain the credibility you needed to amongst the business the, your team um, and and lead it effectively man i i think you know you've you've got to be willing to to uh put the time in to do what's needed for the business to be successful and to you know have a set of values that um are about making sure you take care of the customers and take care of the um that are the employees of the organization that make everything work. And, and mm-hmm. you know, philosophically, I've always kind of believed in, you know, kind of the inverted organization where it's your job to take away the barriers that cause people to not be able to do their jobs well. And so you want to, you want to mm-hmm. eliminate those, those, uh, those hassles and those, those causes of pain that don't allow people to be able to be effective. And if you, if you do those kinds of things and you make your your job about making other jobs better and easier and people more effective and productive and giving them the ability to um to to be successful the organization will be successful because it's it's not about you it's it's the environment that you create for the people that are in your business you make it better and you you if you're committed to doing those kinds of things fundamentally good stuff's going to happen and and that's what you mm-hmm. need to, to me that's what i think um you need to do from from a chance of achieving the the kind of success that you want success will happen just because yeah. you're doing the right thing yeah yeah you know you talk about having a set of values that align with the prior owner in this case a family member yeah we're assuming that those values are known and communicated and clear as opposed to just something you learn and feel over time by being a part of the uh, part of the team and the part of the business when you when you took over at oei were the values clear to you did you share them or did was that a learning process no there was there were certain things that were shared with me that were expected which the the number one thing was do what you say you're going to do have credibility and integrity and and some of that also came from the values of ibm um, years ago okay. when, you know, they had, they had their values and those were, those were easy to share and communicate because that was the way that, 
you know, I had said I was going to run, you know, as a, as a youngster. I said, well, the only way I know how to do it was the way that I was trained and the way I was taught, which was treat people with respect uh, and dignity and always make customers priority and, and honor your word and those kinds of fundamental things. So, so there was never, ever any question in the family business that, that when I stepped into the family. The other business, um, when I went to Bradford, which was I thought was a brilliant move, is that one of the owners said, said, you and I are going to work together to create a value statement, and then we're going to have agreement to it, and then this is how the company is going to be run. And what, what it was in hindsight, as I saw what he was doing, was he was making sure that his values were communicated to me, and I knew what was there, and he in turn was establishing expectations for me to run um, a family business that which they were second generation and that they had a great deal of pride over, which they should have. And I thought it was a, as I thought back on it, um, I thought it was a brilliant management move to set that and put that in place. And actually, if you think about, you know, we're talking about family businesses in the future, it would be a great thing for a generation who were passing it on to sit down and say, okay, there are certain things that have to happen. Let's talk about the values of the business. What are important? And you can get that on paper and get agreement that says, okay, this is the way it's going to be conducted and this is what I expect. You know, and besides the financial results that, that people are being held accountable to, really how people are going to be treated and how the business is going to be run and how customers are going to be treated, you get that and you get that understood. Man, it makes it a hell of a lot easier to deal with any issue that comes up in the family business because you're talking about what expectations are and they were predefined rather than going on the fly. So it was a, it was a great exercise and uh, kudos to the gentleman who, uh, who decided that that's what he was going to do with me when I joined, when I joined uh, Bradford. Yeah. It's a smart move. I, I don't know that you know, people talk a lot about governance in yeah. family businesses and just in general, actually, but values is not necessarily something that comes up as a, as a, beachhead to governance. And that's essentially what you're saying here. Well, let me tell you what's interesting is that now fast forward to I retire and then all of a sudden I'm presented with this wonderful opportunity to to kind of give back in terms of running an organization that helps people with uh, developmental disabilities and autism. And um, we didn't have a value statement in the organization. And so with the management team, we created one. And then I did something that I'd never done, was, which was I then created a management presentation for our employees to help them interpret what this means. Because not everybody you know, is going to read it and going to take the time to go, okay, well, I, I understand that. But um, actually took the time to say, this is what this is about and this is what we're trying to do. And I will tell you, it was a, an eye-opening experience and for me. And I learned a lot because of seeing the reaction and watching people's faces as you begin to, to make that interpretation. So many things you, you put on paper and you put it on the wall and you take for granted and assume that everybody gets it. But unless you take the time to have a conversation and really try to explain it. Um, and I think it made a difference in terms of saying, okay, well, this is, this is what I expect. This is how people are going to be treated. This is what you can expect of me and in turn what I expect of you. And it, it, was a, mm-hmm. it was a great way to kind of reset an organization in terms of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Is, this, um, is this something that you feel like has materially affected the behavior and activity, you know, throughout the business? Um, you know, when I first, if you just think about coming, if you're new and you come into an organization mm-hmm. and not everybody knows you. It, 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 creates a, it creates a wonderful opportunity to talk about this is what people can expect because these are the values that, that I, run, I want the organization to be run by. And, and, and I put myself right in front and saying, it starts with me. If I don't do this, how can I expect this of you? And so it starts with me in terms of this is what you can expect of me in terms of how I'm going to do my job and how you're going to be treated as an employee. And it it was a level set, but it was also a, a reset, if you will, and, and I think it was really very positively received. And, and now is it something that, you know, that gets cited every day? No, but there are times when we are faced with a decision and then we turn around and, well, 
how does that fit in with our values as to what we were going to do? And then the decision gets made easily. It kind of takes all the emotion out of it. And then we say, okay, this is what we're going to do. So it, mm-hmm. it, it, it has had an impact. Interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about some of the tough business decisions I've seen owners, uh, presidents, what have you make. And, um, you know, the toughest ones are where some of those decisions were necessary and they, they in some cases, ran contrary to what they felt the business's values were. But uh, they simply had to be made for performance reasons or because it was impacting the health of the overall organization. Um, I'm just trying to put this in context. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I do those kinds of things happen? Absolutely. And in the end, I would argue, okay, let's say, let's say it, it deals with maybe the removal of a person from a job that's been there a long time and it's been mm-hmm. loyal, but they're in the wrong job. If let's say you employ several hundred people and that that individual is negatively affecting the performance of so many, well, you, 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 you don't necessarily want to get rid of someone who's been incredibly loyal to the business at the same time you're affecting the future success or current and future success and and maybe putting the business in at risk and so mm-hmm. it 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 feels like it goes against your values but in essence if you're thinking for your customers and your employees overall it probably is the the right decision to make in terms of making a change if that were an example i'm sure that there are there are other examples that yeah, that people could come up with, but you know, it's a those those situations. You know that I always tell people take the emotion out of what's going on and uh, try to just yeah. deal with the facts. And a lot of times, the you know the that'll that'll make it at least easier to easier to get your arms around what you need to do. Yeah, I think it also matters how you do it. And so, if you're removing a person, for example, and you're concerned about their future because they've been a long-time employee and their relevance in another organization is unknown. You know, you can support them through that process as well so they land on their feet. Well, it, I mean, it, it's, it goes back to a respect and dignity for the individual. And if you have somebody who's been loyal, but they, they got into the wrong job and didn't perform well in the job that they were in, you treat that person right. I mean, it's, I mean, as you very well know, in those types of circumstances, when someone is, you know, removed from a position, people think about, okay, they look at it as the removal, but they almost always go, well, what if that were me? Is that, you know, would I be treated fairly? I mean, they always begin to, you know, they circle back to, well, if that was me, how would I be treated? And they watch and people pay attention to that stuff. And it's always... You know, anybody who thinks that it's just a, you know, just this little tunnel between you and that other individual, it's, you know, think again, because everybody's watching how everything happens. So you've got to, you've got to, you know, walk the talk in terms of how you treat people, in terms of the dignity and the respect that goes in those difficult types of decisions. Well, Mike, thank you very much for sharing as much as you have. One final question for you. Yeah. Whether it's uh, at a personal level or if we're speaking in business terms, is there anything that if you looked back on your whole career, you're trying to do differently going forward, something you've learned from um, that uh, you can share with us? I'll share something that I learned when I came out of retirement and came to uh, Little Friends in the, mm-hmm. in, in the role that I've got now as, as CEO. When the board asked me to take the position, and and I agreed. Coming out of retirement, um, I really felt like you you're either all in or you're all out, and um, I didn't feel as though doing it part time was going to be something where my own personality would would manage well with that. Because if I felt like I was in a lame duck position, that wasn't going to work. So so I made a commitment, and, and the reason for the story is that I made a commitment that I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to commit to a minimum of five years and a maximum of 10. At the end of 10 years, I'll be old enough to where I think that it would be important for someone who can provide more energy than what I think that I would be able to provide to run a business. Because when you lead it, you're a source of energy. Let's, let's call it as it is. You've got to be that source of energy. So what ended up happening when I started is I did my typical let's talk and I want to understand what's going on. But 
normally in in other situations i'd take a 60 or 90 day wait and see get to know everybody don't shake up things up too bad because they're trying to get to know you and they don't they don't want to you know you don't want to leave a bad impression but at the same time you don't want to act too quickly and then all of a sudden create some problems this time around because i knew that i had a minimum of 5 years and a maximum of 10 my my sense of urgency was different and i will tell you i learned something about that because i didn't say well we're going to study this for 60 days and see what happens i said no this is clear to me this is what we need to do let's let's prioritize these things these are the high priorities these are the low ones but this is the direction we need to head and and then we kind of did a reset on striving to be the best at what we do as opposed to just kind of moving along and um mm-hmm. and it and it went back to the whole idea of a sense of, of sense of urgency that we just didn't have time to not do it right but in my mind it was thinking you know if i'm going to get this done in 5 years i got to get started on this now as i look back on my career there were times when i wish i had that same level of sense of urgency where i where i would have acted sooner trusted my instincts cuz for the most part i haven't misstepped or hurt anything and tried to make some things better but that sense of urgency made a difference quickly and i wondered what well, what what would it have been like had i had done that in other things in retrospect and so what I learned even after doing this, retiring and coming back into it, the importance of a sense of urgency and 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 making sure that you're thinking those things through, that you're you're not going so slow and being too cautious that you don't trust your instincts in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. So I hope that mm-hmm. makes some sense. But it was a it was a really interesting lesson and something uh, that's pretty humbling because you you'd like to think you you know what you're doing after running companies for thirty years and. I would tell you that this was one that clearly I learned something. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was having a conversation about what, what is, what is on the CEO's agenda? What, what are they concerned about with, with a, with a friend of mine and he's got 30 years on top of me. So he's been through more than I can imagine. And he said, obviously revenue and profit, um, gross profit in particular, um, organizational harmony and speed and i didn't understand that last one and it's it's very interesting because i i see this in my own business i see this in other businesses you know and so my question to you is this how do you how do you determine let's say i was going into a business as i do professionally you know how do i determine if the speed is there the urgency is there your own urgency or the urgency of what's going on in the business that you're getting into? I guess I want to make sure I understand the frame of reference for your the organizational, The organizational urgency. My okay. own speed is a different story. Yeah, no, mine, and mine, has, I, mine has always been faster, and, but clearly faster now than what it was. I think as you, as you ask questions about change, and you ask questions about, you know, if you keep getting the answer, well, this is the way that we've always done it. And yeah, we, we've really, you know, we've, we've not done anything. Or when was the last time that continual improvement initiatives were, were taken into consideration and changes made? And if the answer is, well, I can't remember and I have no idea, that kind of tells you that the pace of change is pretty slow. Yeah. And, the, and it needs to speed up. You know, it's, uh, there's, I think it was somebody said that Mario Andretti, said that you know if you're if you're driving and you and you you feel like you're 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 just a little bit out of control then you're then you're going the right speed if you're if you don't feel like you're a little bit out of control you're not driving fast enough and you know and if, <laughs> if you if you think about that as it relates to business you know if if you go at a pace where you feel like you're in control of everything more than likely you're going too slow because mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to you're not no one can really i just i just don't see that you can't keep your arms around everything and manage it so tightly that you've got everything under control you know that there are elements where you you try to mitigate risk you can't eliminate it but you try to mitigate it and um 
And then in doing so, then you say, okay, if we do these things, what are the chances of getting something implemented and making it better? And um, I just, you know, speed and, and moving fast, um, you know, when you think about people's general resistance to change, that's, you know, that's the number one thing. People always go, oh, they just are going way too fast. And I heard that in the beginning, but now, you know, what I hear is people like the pace because they see the results and they see that things are getting better and things have improved and, and, um, and they like the feeling that comes with those kinds of victories. You know, when you, when you implement a change and you, you make something better and then it's tangible and, and others benefit, you know, that's something that people feel good about. And so that's a cool thing to, it's a cool thing too. So yeah, no, just speed, speed is important, you know, it's, and, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's a, it's a nifty balance between in control and out of control, but you want to feel just a little bit out of control from my vantage point, but not so chaotic that you still can't rein it back in, but you want to, you want to push yourself because you'll go faster as yeah. an organization if you're willing to push yourself. I, I like that. The next time I ask someone, how are you doing? And they say, I'm doing great. I'm going to tell them that sounds terrible. You need to be a little bit out of control. Yeah, no, exactly. Just a little bit out of control. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Hey, can you can you take just a moment to tell the audience about Little Friends? I oh, think sure. It's, uh, worth knowing something about. Oh, my goodness. It's a, it's a privilege to talk about what our organization does. We were, uh, well, first of all, we help uh, individuals of all ages that are challenged primarily by intellectual and developmental disabilities and autism. And so we have a multitude of programs that can begin with helping children as early as 18 months old and provide services for adults literally through end of life. And in between, a, a bevy of different programmatic opportunities where we can help both the individuals with special needs and their families in a variety of different ways. To put in perspective, we have a center for autism that does diagnostic evaluations for very young children, uh, but can do it all the way up through, you know, early, early teens if necessary, all the way up to uh, then providing additional therapies for the children. We have uh, and operate three different schools that help two of which help children that are on the autism spectrum. One of the, one of the programs helps high school students with social and emotional challenges looking to get kind of a reset in life. We have an adult day program where we provide support for adults where they will come in and they will learn life skills. They will also have opportunities to uh, do some work uh, where we provide, we provide work for key manufacturers in the area and they bring they bring components and then we'll do piece part assembly and things like that. We operate 38 homes that provides residential support to over a hundred, well, basically about 102, um, mostly adults and one group home for children. And then we provide respite support for families who need a break for, for families that have children with special needs. There are times when Parents just need a, a window of time to be able to go to the grocery store because they can't do it otherwise, and um, we're able to provide that kind of help and support. There's all sorts of family counseling that goes in everything that we do, but I will tell you we uh, we support nearly a thousand individuals on an annualized basis uh, through uh, over 400 full and part-time employees. In terms of the resources, we're one of the larger employees in the in in Naperville in terms of where we're currently at right now. We're moving at the end of this month to a brand new facility that we purchased and renovated. The renovations will be done at the end of December. So we're pretty excited about that. And um, it will give us a stepping stone to be able to offer more services for children because it's primarily going to be used for education requirements. The, the needs and the number of kids that are being found to be on the autism spectrum are, are sadly, it's a growing business. And um, I wish it wasn't, but it's growing business. It's gone from one in one in sixty nine or seventy now down to one in fifty four. In some states, it's less than one in forty. So it's I mean it's a it's a serious issue in terms of what's going on. And so anyway, that's what we do. 
and um, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful organization. The incredible passion and love for the people that we care for, and and for me, it's a it's a privilege to do what I get to do because I get to run the business side, but I'm I'm not the social service person, you know. Uh, and if they asked me to do that stuff, that wouldn't be my area of expertise. I know what I bring to the dance, and I and I think that we are a business. It's just our our tax code yeah. happens to be nonprofit, but we are a business. When you have four hundred employees, you know it's a it's a sizable thing. If our payroll, I can tell you on a comparative basis with our payroll as what it is, we if we compared to a a typical manufacturing company, we'd be a seventy million dollar business, but we're not it's because our payroll is everything that we do. It's all about the services that we provide for those we care for. So, so that's what Little Friends does. So I appreciate you asking. Thank you. Absolutely. I think it's an extraordinary organization and, and uh, worth checking out. Well, thank I you. Appreciate appreciate you sharing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast emerging strategic consultancy to middle market business. You can find us online at www.kgkcompany.com. That's A-G-K-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y.com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.